When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Whether we've ever really given it any study, we're all at least a little familiar with the link between the Nazi party and the occult. Movies like Captain America and Hellboy have plot lines that center on supernatural obsessions of the Nazi leadership, desperately trying to find magical or supernatural ways of winning the war and establishing the Nazi worldview. Indiana Jones famously fought the Nazis more than once to secure the Holy Grail and also the Ark of the Covenant, which the Nazis hoped would bring them some kind of cosmic power. But this is just pop culture, embellishing what we already know was a fanatical movement to create compelling movie plots, right? Right? Um, well, as we always say, um, it's complicated. But in short, while those movie plot lines might be exaggerated for dramatic effect, they actually weren't made up out of whole cloth. The NSDAP, or the National Socialist Workers Party, which rose to power in the interwar period led by Adolf Hitler, was a party ideologically enabled by occultist theories about the Aryan race and vampiric Jews, on old folk tales about secret vigilante courts and protective werewolves, and pseudoscientific ideas about ice moons. In this episode, we are going to explore the occult ideas, racial mythology, and supernatural imaginary that helped to create the Nazi party. I'm Sarah. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We're so honored to have listeners all over the world. A true global community that's reflected in our incredible auger and excavator level patrons. Jesse in Florida, Lauren and Edward in Ohio, Denise in Albany, Maddie in Texas, oh Maddie, Maggie in Oregon, <laughs> Danielle in Idaho, Lisa in British Columbia, Agnes in Iceland, Iris in Washington, Maria in Germany, 
and Colin, Susan, and Peggy right here with us in Buffalo. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our little historian hearts. Listener, if you are not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Check us out at patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. So before we jump in, just a quick note here to say neither I nor Averill are German speakers. Apologies. I did not. I did not get very far on my Duolingo. I yeah, me actually me neither. I also started a German Duolingo and also failed. It was at the beginning of the pandemic, and I thought that I would have more mental energy for it, and I did not. Um, so Maria in Germany, be gentle with us. I have always wanted to learn German. I've tried very hard to ensure that our pronunciation is as good as possible. But please, I am begging you, do not email us or write us bad reviews based on how bad our German pronunciation really is, because that's what happened last time I did an episode on German history. Uh, We are doing our best here, people. Okay. In 1947, German-born science writer Willy Ley published an essay in the science magazine Astounding Facts, entitled Pseudoscience in Naziland. Ley had fled Germany in the winter of 1935, horrified both by the rise of the Third Reich and a boom in pseudoscience and superstition in Germany. Ley's article begins like this, quote, When things get so tough that there seems to be no way out, the Russian embraces the vodka bottle, the Frenchman a woman, and the American the Bible. The German tends to resort to magic, to some nonsensical belief which he tries to validate by way of hysterics and physical force. He qualifies this by acknowledging, no, not all Germans, of course, but a significant enough percentage that when the Nazis began to use unproven and occult theories in their ideology, it really resonated. As Ley writes, quote, it was the willingness of a noticeable proportion of the Germans to rate rhetoric above research and intuition above knowledge that brought to power a political party which was frankly and loudly anti-intellectual. The willingness to rate rhetoric over research that Lay describes wasn't specific to the Third Reich. And in fact, the culture of occultism in the 1930s and 1940s had deep roots into the late 19th century that created that foundation that the Nazi pseudoscience relied upon. In order to understand the Nazi relationship to the occult, we need to look back into the ideology of the Second German Reich, or the Kaiserreich, which lasted from 1871 to 1918. When Germany unified in 1871, scholars and creatives sought to create a shared past that would help to culturally unify Germans. They specifically looked for a romantic alternative to what they perceived as the bland, pragmatic, and rational English and French cultures. They relied first on the work done by an earlier wave of German creatives like Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who typified the Sturm und Drang movement. Sturm und Drang was a precursor to Romanticism that operated outside of rationalism and emphasized emotionality and impetuousness. Goethe's most famous story, The Sorrows of Young Werther, is about a young man who is tortured by unrequited love until he dies by suicide. 
Goethe and his contemporaries helped to set off the Romantic movement. In Germany, two of the most famous Romanticist creatives were the Grimm brothers and Richard Wagner. The Grimm brothers, Wilhelm and Jacob, wrote up old German folktales for a public eager for Romantic versions. The Grimms were motivated by the belief that elevating and disseminating such folktales was a way of preserving a morally superior German culture, one based on a particular vision of the Volk, or the people, as rural, hardworking people who led simple lives. Their stories were also full of monsters, like witches, demons, and evil Jews that threatened the Volk. Richard Wagner also presented old tales in new ways. His early operas were romances, drawn from Goethe, for example, but later he turned to Germanic and Norse mythology for inspiration. The operas considered his masterpieces make up what is called the Ring Cycle, or Der Ring des Neiblungen, which is four operas that sort of go together. Uh, the Rheingold, the Valkyrie, Siegfried, and Twilight of the Gods. Those are the English translations. Um, side note. It has always been my dream to see all four of those. I, I think it would be really incredible. If you were to watch the Ring Cycle operas, it would total roughly 15 hours. They do it sometimes where they like it's like a marathon or like four nights in a row. But even then, like even four nights in a row, like they are big. They are really long. And you'll recognize the story if you're a Tolkien fan. It centers on a magic ring that grants the power to rule the world, passed back and forth between gods and humans. The action of the operas is kicked off when a dark and evil dwarf steals the ring from three beautiful Rhine maidens or water nymphs that live in the river Rhine. And like it's been interpreted that there's like a, a subtext there. This evil, dark, evil dwarf is probably clearly supposed to be a Jew. And then we've got these beautiful ethnically German women who are protecting this ancient treasure and the Jew comes and steals it from them, right? Or at least that's the subtext. Virginity. Uh, Wagner, that too. <laughs> Wagner was a nationalist and an anti-Semite. And while the operas aren't overtly political, they definitely spoke to the renewed German interest in Norse mythology and are intended to provide the German state with a, a sense of shared past and shared mythology. We should pause here to say that all of this desire for a shared past and mythology is understood folkish movement, an ethno-nationalist movement that was active in the late 19th century. The term can be translated many different ways, but it can be understood as meaning anything from the fairly simple ethno-nationalist to the more occult-sounding bio-mystical racialist. The idea was that there was a sense of national connection based on common blood, spirit, and energy. The Folkish movement was inherently racist, arguing that Germans were racially superior, which we'll describe more soon, but it was also more than that. We're not in the habit of using Wikipedia as a source here, but we're going to borrow this succinct description from Wikipedia because, let's face it, they're good at making complicated things more accessible. So, quote, the word folkish has been rendered as popular, populist, peoples, racial, racist, ethnic, chauvinist, nationalistic, communitarian, for Germans only, conservative, traditional, Nordic, romantic. And it means, in fact, all of those. End quote. I, 
yeah, I, I don't normally, I, I mean, I wouldn't normally quote Wikipedia, but I just loved the way that it showed all of these different translations of the term yeah. because it actually like encompasses all of those things. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And a concept that went hand in hand with the Folkish movement was Lebensraum. Lebensraum was the idea that German speaking people needed not only to be united, but needed space to return to an idealized, traditional, rural, agrarian way of life. That space would come from Eastern Europe, which Folkish thinkers erroneously believed had been stolen from ancient Germanic peoples and then poorly utilized by Slavs and Jews. As Volkish thinking grew across the 19th century, fewer and fewer Germans were going to church, and some ethno-nationalists began to try to find new forms of religion that were more authentically German, rather than global or otherwise centered outside of the German state, like the Catholic Church. In some cases, this meant fusing Christianity with Norse mythology or other ancient and often fabricated ancient traditions like runes and ancient epic poems and texts. Alongside this was a resurgence in interest in supernatural monsters like vampires and werewolves. But these old beliefs had very different interpretations within the German context. Rather than scary or dangerous crones, for instance, German legends cast witches as a kind of earth mothers who were persecuted by power-hungry Catholic church officials. Werewolves had a similar spin in German culture. Two separate novels, one published in 1848 and the other in uh, 1910, used the idea of the werewolf to describe peasant movements to resist foreign incursions during the Thirty Years' War. In the second novel, the one published in 1910, Hermann Lahn's Der Werwolf, Lahn's actually makes a play on words in the novel's title. And this is something that, without seeing it, I mean, maybe they're pronounced slightly differently if you speak German, um, but they look they sound very similar. So you'd have to kind of look at it to understand. So I'm going to spell them for you. So the first one is spelled Der Werewolf, D-E-R, then werewolf, W-E-R-W-U-L-F, which is the typical spelling. But instead, in the 1910 novel, he spells it Der Werewolf, which is spelled D-E-R, W-E-H-R-W-O-L-F, which might sound the same, but is spelled differently. And and Ver, W-E-H-R, means defense, which creates this new word of defense wolf or war wolf rather than werewolf. So war wolves were these guerrilla fighters who protected the realm from the threat of outsiders. Now, on the other hand, and we'll come back to that later, Uh, On the other hand, vampires were more evil in German culture than they were in other cultures, which tended to see vampires as somewhat romantic. Like if you think of the um, 1930s um, Dracula films, Dracula is dangerous, but he's also a a very sort of um, sensual and romantic figure, sort of tempting. 
In German culture, vampires were understood as racially other, uh, as Jewish or Slavic, and originating on the edges of the of German-speaking Europe. The 1922 German film Nosferatu, for example, depicts the main uh, the, the vampire in it, whose name is Orlock, Count Orlock, as having stereotypically Jewish characteristics. The desire for a shared mythology or origin also ventured into pseudoscientific race theory. The term Aryan initially referred to an Indo-European language group, but was adopted by some scholars like the English expat Houston Stuart Chamberlain, uh, who was Wagner's son-in-law, to refer to a superior race of humans that had originated in India and the Middle East. Chamberlain argued that all of human history was a struggle between Aryans and Semites. Some German scholars of ancient Indian literature, like the Bhagavad Gita and Mahabharata, reread those texts as, quote, Indo-Germanic epics and claimed them as their own. Other scholars have a different theory focused on Nordic roots of Germans called Germanism, which substituted the Norse epic uh, Edda poems for the Indian texts. But as Eric Kurlander writes, both Arianism and Germanism were variations on the same belief of an Ur-Germanic master race. And those re-readings of the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata are just, like, based on literally nothing. <laughs> like, they're just, they're, they make no sense whatsoever. Um During this time period, race theories abounded. The incredibly popular Theosophy New Religious Movement, which told of a more complex history of human races, was developed by Helena Blavatsky in the United States in the late 19th century. Blavatsky was a a Russian immigrant um, to the United States. Theosophy taught that there was a secret brotherhood of spiritual masters or Mahatmas that retained the last knowledge of an ancient magical religion. According to Blavatsky's theory that there were seven root races, each existing in a slightly different time period and slightly different place on Earth. Think of it as a kind of alternate version of human evolution. Um, Even though they're called the root races, it actually refers more to like epochs or eras of time. So the races weren't um, concurrent. We're talking about sort of like eras in which different races of people lived and then died out and then another one kind of took their place. The various races currently living on Earth had retained some of the traits of those previous races, but not all humans were still able to access the magic of those previous peoples. Theosophy was was a tolerant religion that advocated for universal brotherhood. But people, of course, do not always apply or interpret religion in the ways that they were originally intended, right? Germans, historian Eric Kurlander argues, interpreted theosophy differently than American or British adherents. Germans focused particularly on the organization of the root races, the fact that they were uh, hierarchically organized. The fifth root race was the Aryan race, according to Theosophy, which originated in the mythical civilization of Atlantis. These Atlantean Aryans were white and they (laughs) sometimes referred to them as moon colored. They were apparently very white. 
and intellectually and spiritually advanced. Other races, like um, some African societies and Indian people, could never be like the Aryans, even with exactly equal opportunities, because they fundamentally were not Aryan, right? The Aryan race actually had specific characteristics that other races wouldn't have. Semites, or Jews, uh, Blavatsky wrote, were also part of the Aryan race, but that they had somehow degenerated. And it's not exactly clear how that degeneration happened, just that they had degenerated. After the fifth race, the Aryan race, a sixth race would come into being, according to the Theosophical Worldview. And there's some mumbo jumbo about an island rising up out of the Pacific. And we're, we're just not even going to go into it because it <laughs> it's just so bizarre. But the part that German thinkers focused on was that the sixth race would be an advanced master race united under a single powerful leader that would head up a powerful global government. It was this last part that captured the attention of Austro-German thinkers, who largely jettisoned the parts about universal brotherhood and instead focused on bringing about this advanced sixth race. Ideas about the superior Aryan race and the lost civilization of Atlantis particularly captured the German imagination, especially as they hoped to find that shared mythology for the new German state. Jörg Lanz, editor of the occultist magazine Ostara, for example, interpreted Blavatsky's theories in a particularly German way. Lanz combined Blavatsky's theories with some ancient Greek writings about the island of Thule, sometimes interpreted as Iceland. He theorized that the people of Thule were Nordic proto-Aryans, and that when Atlantis, or Thule, was destroyed in a flood, some survivors migrated to the Himalayas, where they became the Aryans. So that was really, um, complicated. (laughs) Yeah, sure. But, sure, what that would mean is that the superior Aryan race was originally Nordic and Germanic. Eventually, Germans created their own versions of theosophy called anthroposophy. Anthroposophy seized on the idea that the ancient Aryan race had spiritual powers and that they could be revived through spiritual study and other methods like organic farming using astrology. (laughs) Anthroposophy was also invested in science, but only in science that could be manipulated into proving its reality. Yeah. If none of that made sense to you, listener, just be aware that it just doesn't make sense. Like, none of this stuff makes sense. It's just the right place. And it's all just circular logic. It's just very, very strange. So as we've seen with all of these beliefs, anthroposophy was intertwined with the belief in the racial superiority of this mythical Aryan-German race, and the inferiority, for some reason, of Jews. Anthroposophists were more scientific-minded than earlier theosophists, right? The theosophists were really, it, it was this new religious movement, and they weren't as much invested in proving it with science. The anthroposophists were more interested in proving all of this superiority of the Aryans through science. And so it's not surprising that they were excited about the science of eugenics when it became popular in the 1910s and 20s. 
But as Eric Curlander writes, quote, anthroposophists embraced eugenics not primarily because of their faith in modern science, but because they thought that spirituality and race were intrinsically linked. Like they saw it as a as a way to affirm what they already believed. It helped to lend an undercurrent of scientific legitimacy to their pre-existing ideas about racial superiority of the Aryan Germans. Rudolf Steiner, a prominent anthroposophist thinker and writer, wrote that, quote, humanity has risen by throwing out the lower forms in order to purify itself, and it will rise still higher by separating another kingdom of nature, the kingdom of the evil race. Thus, mankind rises upward. He wrote that while humans developed different cultures naturally, quote, dark skin only developed because of, quote, demonic interference. Racial mixing was therefore antithetical to the mission of spiritual evolution and personal betterment taught by anthroposophy. Theosophy and anthroposophy created the foundation for yet another belief system, one that would was even more central to what Curlander calls, quote, the Nazi supernatural imaginary or the broad occultist worldview of the Nazi party. This belief, called Ariosophy, was developed by Jörg Lanz and Guido von Liszt. Liszt, obsessed with the revival of German folklore of the late 19th century, again thinking Wagner and the Grimm brothers, developed the idea that there was an ancient pre-Christian cult, which he called the Armanen. The Armanen were, quote, Aryan priest kings of an ancient pagan religion, List believed that the Armanen had their own language based on runes. List also argued that the superior Armanen civilization had been slowly destroyed by Christian imperialism and breeding with non-Aryans. List believed himself to be a real scientist doing important eugenic, folklorist, and archaeological research, even though most mainstream science ignored his publications. And I didn't have time uh, to go into it much here, but that um, there is so much more on runes specifically. But you'll, if you look at um, List's version of these quote unquote Germanic runes, which was largely sort of invented, um, you'll recognize those symbols as later becoming the symbols of like the SS and, and things like that. Um, they adopted those runic symbols. Jörg Lanz, whose full name was Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels, then took List's Armanen theory and made it into a, quote, full occult doctrine, which he named Ariosophy. Lanz and his Ariophysist ideas were somehow, somehow even more wild. They believed that humans were the result of a forbidden intermixing between animals and angels and that the different races were the result of varying amounts of angel ancestry. The more angel you had in you, the more Nordic you were. Because, of course, right? There was one um, quote from Lons where he's talking about, like, Norwegians were actually, like, the perfect Nordics because they were almost 1% angel. <laughs> This is how uh, Eric Curlander describes Ariosophy, quote, If we had to distill List and Lanz's bizarre ideas into a few basic principles, we might emphasize the role of superhuman races, 
whose Aryan golden age had been supplanted by an alien and hostile culture defined by inferior races. This ancient Germanic religion might be restored through knowledge in cryptic forms, such as runes, myths, traditions, but such runes and traditions could be deciphered ultimately only by spiritual heirs. Ariosophy then did a lot of ideological work for this larger Volkish movement. It offered a shared mythology or a history that was ancient, racially superior, and uniquely German. It explained why society had degraded from that earlier purer state, you know, through things like miscegenation and colonization by outsiders. And it suggested that Germany could be returned to that state if the right people learned about and adopted ancient history and religion. And that's not all. At the same time, Germans were experimenting with what Kurlander calls the, quote, border sciences, things like alternative scientific theories, astrology, creology, which is palm reading, characterology, which is a kind of astrology, phrenology hybrid, mediumship, and radiesthesia, which is using um, divining rods and pendulums. Kurlander calls these border sciences because they weren't seen as marginal or new agey like they might be today. Uh, instead, a huge interest in parapsychology or scientifically studying the paranormal made it so that all of these things were understood as feasible alternatives that required real scientific study. Many of these practices were associated with health and personal betterment. Dowsing rods and pendulums, for instance, were often consulted to locate bad energies that might cause physical disease or spiritual stuntedness. Anthroposophists and Ariosophists, remember, believed that self-improvement might help to bring about the pure Aryan race. One of the most popular border scientific theories of the era was Weltesler, or World Ice Theory. This was an alternative scientific theory developed by Austrian scientist and philosopher Hans Horberger, who had a dream in which he observed a great pendulum swinging while he was floating around in outer space. This somehow convinced him that the universe was all based on, quote, the antagonistic ur substances of ice and fire. It is an incredibly confusing theory, um, as you have probably already guessed. It, and it's because it makes literally zero real sense. Like, it's just the musings of Horbinger. It, it has a lot to do with a water-filled star, like, exploding and shooting ice crystals out into the universe, which then created multiple solar systems and our own Earth uh, which was shaped then by lots of ice meteors and ice moons crashing into it and melting and, and thus creating like the oceans and the, the geography of the earth. I mean, th that's kind of the, the theory. But th this this was very, very accepted by Volkish thinkers. And part of the theory that really um, was adopted by Volkish thinkers was Horbiger's theory that the human race was actually created when ice meteors r fell to Earth containing divine sperma. And that that divine sperma was what created the Aryan race. And so this created a an alternative for Volkish thinkers to reject Darwinism and say, 
other other races uh, evolved from apes but we didn't the aryans didn't the aryans were actually the result of this higher power this divine sperma coming to earth and evolving into the aryan race i was with you until the divine sperma you were with me until the divine sperm. You were okay with the ice crystals actually yeah, creating the universe. That's like one of the theories for how you would terraform an inhospitable planet is you would throw like water, you know, water containing ice meteors or whatever at a planet um, until it creates a an ocean. There you go. An ocean. Horberger and a, and had it figured out. In an atmosphere, yeah. So, because <laughs> I listen to a lot of sci-fi novels, so it's oh, not that right. Hard. So that's <laughs> that's what. Listen, of the, that's one all of the, the sci-fi theories. is based on good science. That's what sci-fi is. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. So anyway, during the late 19th and early 20th century, we have this bubbling cauldron of mystic beliefs, pseudo history, pseudoscience, and folkish ideology. Some of this, like theosophy, divination, and astrology, were not obviously uniquely German. Theosophy, after all, was first developed in the United States. But the growing pains of the Second Reich made it all made all these ideas in Germany sort of blend together into and, and mix with folkish racial and nationalist ideology in a way that they didn't really in other countries. Then factor in the German loss in World War One which resulted in harsh recriminations in the Treaty of Versailles. The interwar period under the government of the Weimar Republic was marked by hyperinflation and popular demoralization. Writing at the beginning of the Second World War, German philosopher Gerhard Chesney wrote that the, quote, general cultural and economic collapse, inflation, and the ensuing big political and social crises of the Weimar period prepared the way for the occult in its lowest forms and created a whole new genre in terms of occult periodicals drawn from the murkiest sources, end quote. He believed that the shock of war, followed by social and spiritual distress in the years thereafter, made Germans especially susceptible to the, quote, warm arms of the oldest and most primitive of all human illusions of wish fulfillment, the exciting, feverish spell of the magical worldview and superstition, end quote. Occult newspapers, magazines, books, societies, and research groups proliferated, and average Germans flocked to astrologers and clairvoyants. The esoteric and occult theories that had always existed suddenly boomed as people tried to cope with the real difficulties of living through economic and political unrest. I think it's important to note that this wasn't just individuals like getting tarot readings. I mean, it was. People were doing that. But it all, but it was made bigger and more meaningful than that by the theories of the anthroposophists and the Ariosophists. The Germans, according to their theories, were actually descended from the ancient Aryans who possessed spiritual power. The use of things like pendulums and divination, they believed, allowed Germans to, quote, tap into long lost paranormal powers, magic, that was lost when the ancient Aryans mated with lesser races. Occultism offered a way of channeling this primordial magic. 
So this was a way to bring back the power that had once been theirs, a desire that was made all the more important as Germans felt their most powerless. It was during this time period that Adolf Hitler, a frustrated art student wounded during the First World War, received and annotated a copy of Ernst Stettler's occultist book, Magic, History, Theory, and Practice. Shetler's book is a work of parapsychology, blending together ideas about the psyche with the paranormal. And there's lots of slippery definitions of parapsychology because a lot of scholars who were legitimate scientists or psychiatrists, psychologists doing this scientific, quote unquote, scientific parapsychological work were themselves very invested in the paranormal. Um, And so it they might call themselves parapsychologists, but they were particularly interested in finding scientific justifications for these beliefs, right? So Sheridan described powerful leaders in in society as magicians who could manipulate people into following them. Becoming a magician required being in touch with, quote, the irrational by invoking one's intuition, a kind of personal internal divination. Becoming powerful meant using the hallucinatory suggestive process in which a magician used ceremony, tradition, ritual, and shared totems, shared symbols to generate shared energies. Curlander writes this about this theory, quote, Hitler generated the same energies, the energies that Shetler is talking about, by shifting his venues from Munich beer halls to massive rallies, ceremonies, and parades. Hitler's personal copy of Magic, which now lives in the library at Brown University, is heavily marked up with lines marking important passages and all sorts of notes scrawled to himself throughout. So it's obviously a book that he read and thought deeply about. Now, we don't know exactly how Hitler thought about magic or the occult. He didn't talk about it much publicly, and he didn't write about it all that much. We do know that he read the work of thinkers like Schertl, and we know that he described racial pseudoscience in his writing like Mein Kampf. But scholars of this Nazi occult are pretty clear that we have every reason to believe that Hitler believed in occult power and also believed that occult power could be, quote, channeled, controlled, and directed by man. Moreover, we also know that contemporaries thought about Hitler in occult terms. He was described as a medium, magician, or medicine man who could manipulate mystical forces. Nazi party member Otto Strasser wrote that Hitler was a clairvoyant who went into trances when speaking publicly, quote, carried away by a mystic force. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Averill mentioned that there was a boom in occult thinking after World War I, when the Weimar Republic was mired in economic and political distress. The Ariosophic Society inspired a variety of offshoot groups during this period, like the Edda Society, which was focused on the study of ancient Germanic runes and the German order, which adopted the idea of the root races from theosophy and then added additional rituals. 
Theodore Fritsch, the German order's creator, wanted to more explicitly bring his theories to bear on politics, and so created a second group, which he named the Reichhammer Association, or the Reichshammerbund, which was named for his anti-Semitic publishing company, Der Hammer. Fritsch's goal was to inaugurate an Aryan-Germanic religious revival founded on Germanic supremacy over lower working races and an inexorable hate for the Jews. The Hammer Association sought to unite Volkish groups across class and religious lines to create a large political group and spread the Volkish message through propaganda. The Hammer Association, drawing on decades of theories about Aryan-Germanic people in an ancient struggle against racial others, argued that such quote-unquote parasitic races should be deported out of Germany. One founder of the German order and the Hammer Association, not, um, what's his name? Fritsch. Not Fritsch, one of the other original members, uh, stated that if Jews, quote, prepared to exploit war or revolution, they would be annihilated by the sacred Vem, which would spite the mass criminals with their own weapons. This referred to the Westphalian vigilante secret courts, which could be drawn up. Uh, this was a medieval um, sort of tradition, um, these secret courts that could be drawn up by any German man um, as the Stuhlherr or the chairman, um, and then would be made up by several Freischaffen, or judges. These secret courts could essentially try, pass judgment, and then execute anyone that they found criminal. Those courts had been abolished in the early 19th century, and scholars have, have argued that they maybe weren't actually quite as secret or, or as um, mystically uh, ritualistic as they are later sort of mythologized to be. But they were romanticized by Volkish groups who latched onto the idea of these medieval Vemic courts as a German institution protecting the people by doing whatever was necessary. Eventually, the German Order slash Hammer Association was absorbed into another nationalist group, some members dedicated to the specific occultic aspects of the organization splintered off again. A member of that group, Rudolf Sebotendorf, who published a magazine called The Magic Pages, where he published essays about magic amulets and astrology, met an artist named Walter Nauhaus, who had a small discussion group that focused on new religion. In 1918, they united their two groups into the Thule Society. We talked about the idea of Thule before. It was this mythological island civilization inspired by the myth of Atlantis, located maybe in Iceland, that had been the home of a Nordic race that went on to become the Indo-European Aryan race. Sebotendorf created rituals and shared symbols for members of the society. Members wore membership pins that reflected esoteric Indo-European and Germanic mythology. Men wore a golden swastika with two spears, while women wore just a swastika. You've probably already seen this, um, but the swastika was an ancient Indo-European design that was seen as a symbol of the mythical Aryan race. Right. It's as a, By the Volkish groups, right? They, they believe that it was a symbol of this ancient Aryan race. It's not understood that way in other cultures. And the, the Thule Society first developed at the end of World War I and was shaped by the tumult of the doomed German war effort. 
The Thule Society was more explicitly political than previous Volkish esoteric groups, even as Sabatendorf insisted that it wasn't. They wanted to unite German speakers into a kind of greater Germany, but, you know, removing Jews and communists and other degenerates from society. Sabatendorf was also somewhat anti-capitalist, but he was also strongly anti-Marxist. Instead, he had this idea to create an economy that would allow German workers to succeed, which he believed would be achieved if Jews, who he believed were dominating the marketplace, were removed from Germany. In 1918, not long after creating the Thule Society, Sabatendorf purchased a failing newspaper, which he renamed the Volkischer Beobachter, or VB, in English that translates to the racial observer. Around that same time, the new editor that that came on as, as editor of the VB, Karl Herrer, created a political subgroup within the Thule Society that he dubbed the Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, or the DAP, the German Workers' Party. Still, even with this, uh, Sabatendorf insisted that the organization was not political, but instead simply focused on parapsychology and occult study. That was probably less because Bettendorf meant it and more because after the catastrophic end of World War I, the Weimar government kept close tabs on extremist groups. Being too openly political would lead to a crackdown on the organization. But the humiliating defeat of World War I and a socialist revolution led by a philosopher and politician Kurt Eichner in Bavaria also added fuel to the Thule Society's fire. All around them, they believed they were seeing the apocalyptic degeneration of Germany. Take this quote, for instance. Jews and profiteers became rich, feasting and living at the cost of the folk as if in a promised land. Germany appeared lost. Resigned, the front soldier attempted to safeguard his family from ruin and hunger. Strikes and revolts in all districts. Germany's fate appeared sealed. The world turned upside down. The front soldier and the decent part of the population led a nearly hopeless struggle against this epidemic. Parliamentarianism was celebrated like an orgy. Roughly 35 parties and factions arose and confused the folk. A pure witch's Sabbath! The German folk, devoid of political acumen, staggered toward the diverse will-o'-the-wisps, sick in body and soul. I think this quote is really interesting, and I know it's long, but I think it's important. It actually comes from a former German soldier describing this interwar period. And one reason I think it's really worth including in its its um, in its whole form here is the the references to occult things, right? Like a pure witch's Sabbath is the way that he's describing this um, German culture in the middle of this, the period between World War One and World War II. Um, and the fact that the German Volk is staggering towards the will of the wisps, right? They're kind of being drawn out into the forest, you know, led by these kind of nothing kind of... Um, tempting fires that end up being sort of dissolving into nothingness. And so this sense of impending doom fueled the Thule Society. Just a couple days before Armistice Day, and the day that Kurt Eisner declared a socialist republic in Bavaria, Sabatendorf, remember, not political, 
called a meeting of the society. And I should note here, Eisner, the, the new leader of this Socialist Republic of Bavaria, was Jewish. Uh, Sabatendorf declared that the Thule Society would be dedicated to the work of bringing about a Volkish future for Germany. He said this, quote, yesterday we experienced the collapse of everything which was familiar, dear and valuable to us. In the place of our princes of Germanic blood rules our deadly enemy, Judah. What will come of this chaos? We do not know yet, but we can guess a time will come of struggle the most bitter need, a time of danger. As long as I hold the iron hammer, I am determined to pledge the Thule to this struggle. But not political, not a political organization. <laughs> In January 1919, when the Weimar government created the Fry Corps, a loosely organized paramilitary operation that they used internally to combat the socialist threat, um, it created a perfect opportunity for Volkish groups who are full of people, uh, men, who are eager to, to fight to bring about this Volkish future. Um, Sabatendorf then organized his own paramilitary group, the Kampfbund, that was sort of deputized, um, recognized by the Weimar to be a part of the Freikorps. This group was later renamed the Freikorps Oberland. And this brings a lot more Volkish um, thinking people into the Thule society. Hmm. So Badendorf wasn't satisfied to stop there, though. The government was watching the Thule society constantly, and Sabatendorf only thinly veiled their activity. Once Sabatendorf learned that the police were coming to raid uh, Thule Society headquarters. So to create a cover story, he assembled women members to pretend that they were a eugenic society having a choir practice. <laughs> but when so the police ridiculous. So ridiculous. But when the police insisted on coming in to take a look anyway, Sabatendorf began making violent threats. He said, quote, if you arrest me or one of my people, then my people will nab a Jew wherever they find one and drag him through the streets and insist that he has stolen the host. Then, Air Police President, you will have a pogrom on your hands that will sweep you aside as well. End quote. Not exactly keeping it on the down low. No. <laughs> Sabatendorf published racist screeds in the VB and in 1919 tried to plan a hasty poo to overthrow the socialist government of Bavaria. It failed, obviously. He, he tried to plan it literally in like 24 hours or something. So like that's not, not that I'm like endorsing a coup, but like, you know, you've got to plan If you're going to have a coup, you right. got to like have a good plan. Right. Yeah. And, and they do months. later on, right? Like the beer hall push the and hall things push. like that. But, um, mm. you know, this one was not so well put together. But soon, the DAP, which was that political subgroup created by the Thule Society member, Carl Herrera, um, came to believe that it was necessary to separate further from the Thule Society. As Kurlander writes, quote, without Sabatendorf's Thule Society, without Herrera's political worker circle, and without the infamous newspaper they purchased to promote their worldviews, the Nazi party would almost certainly not have been born, end quote. The DAP, soon to become known as the NSDAP, or Nazi Party, took the ideological foundations and racial mythology of the Thule Society and combined them with far more shrewd political tactics. 
It's important to point out that the NSDAP did not separate from the Thule Society and distance from Sabatendorf because they disavowed his occult ideas. Rather, it was because Sabatendorf just wasn't politically savvy. But without Sabatendorf, the organization needed a charismatic leader to become the mouthpiece of the movement to help it grow and to spread its message. The group found that in September of 1919, when a young Adolf Hitler attended a meeting and became frustrated when a speaker suggested that Bavaria just secede and become an independent nation. Hitler was soaked in German nationalism and really particularly invested in the idea of an expanded and unified German state, this Lebensraum ideas and things like that. Uh, gave, so he, he stands up and he gives this impassioned, impromptu speech that impressed the group's leaders so much that they asked him to join the NSDAP. He did. And soon he became a very important member within the group. Within a few months, the NSDAP had largely overtaken the Thule Society, essentially absorbing it and absorbing its paramilitary group, the Freikorps Oberlund, and its newspaper, the Volkisch Beobachter. But while the group drew in more members and the newspaper was in new editorial hands, its occult ideologies did not disappear. New members of the NSDAP included Theodor Fritsch, the creator of that German order that we discussed earlier, as well as racist fantasy novelists and other Volkish occultists. Hmm. And the NSDAP held events that were specifically designed to bridge the interest in the Volkish occult and Volkish politics. They sponsored pagan solstice festivals, which included honoring pagan gods like Baldur, the sun god, and Siegfried, the half-god, half-man, who was the hero of Richard Faulkner's ring cycle. Of course, the party eventually adopted the symbol of the swastika, which reckoned back to the mythological Indo-European Aryan race. And individual members of the Nazi party held a wide variety of occult views, most of them totally bonkers, and all of them deeply racist. Party leaders repeatedly used references to the threat of monsters in their speeches. Hitler referred to communists as veritable devils because, quote, only within the brain of a monster, not that of a man, could the plan of an organization assume form and meaning, end quote. Gottfried Feder argued that the Weimar Republic turned Germans into zombies. On the other hand, they also called on the mystical powers of blood and soil. Dead German soldiers weren't just symbols or heroes, but present spirits that visited living Germans in the night and whispered in their ears. Even these dead, they argued, were living in a special Aryan afterlife and the Valhalla of the race soul. They, quote, climbed out of their graves at night, um, according to Nazi Robert Ley, and, quote, visit us in our dreams. As is so often the case, rhetorically turning the enemy into a threatening other, animal, insect, monster, and using the dead are powerful tools of propaganda. I, I'm so struck particularly by this imagined particular German afterlife that emphasizes this Volkish idea of of a race soul, right? That there's a shared energy, a shared soul among 
Aryan Germans. I just and of course invoking Valhalla too, right? This sort of borrowed from Norse mythology. So there's so many calls back to this invented shared mythology and pseudo history. But this this is in it's really important to understand this wasn't just talk, right? These aren't just rhetorical flourishes. Important members of the Nazi party really did espouse aspects of the occult. Rudolf Hess, Hitler's close confidant in the early days of the party, was a longtime member of the Thule Society who dabbled in mind reading and consulted astrologers before making decisions. Heinrich Himmler was truly wacky in his occult obsessions, more so than I can even unpack here. We should do an entire episode on Himmler and his wackiness. Uh, Himmler was deeply influenced by Theodor Fritsch's writing as a young man and believed that Christianity was a foreign influence that had displaced a true Germanic pagan religion made up of the Norse gods. He believed in astrology, had a personal psychic who he ends up going on to give sort of a a position within the, the Nazi party. He thought that humans could communicate with the dead, and he was obsessed with the folklore of werewolves. His reading of that novel we discussed earlier, Der Werwolf, influenced him that the werewolf was a powerful symbol of the duty to protect the German homeland. In 1923, this led to the founding of Organisation Werwolf, a paramilitary organization dedicated to protecting the German people. One Werwolf pamphlet read, Why do we fight? Quite simply because so much Nordic blood pulses through us. We cannot live without fighting. We, the racial Bundish movement, we, the werewolves, will clarify and share the articles of faith of the coming time. Further, Himmler was inspired by the Artemanan movement, which was founded on the teachings of Ariosophus about an ancient Aryan Germanic peoples occupying much of Central and Eastern Europe. Artemanans believed that German people needed to restore not only the Aryan race, but also the original German territory by fulfilling the concept of Lebensraum, or a living space, by retaking, quote-unquote, Eastern territories. It was from the Artemanans that the NSDAP was introduced to the concept of blood and soil, which romanticized the rural and caste cities as dangerous, filthy, and Jewish. This is where we get a lot of the propagandistic imagery of the Nazis, of healthy white women with lots of children and beefy farmers gathering wheat or, you know, whatever. It's it, a side note here. It's also important to see just how many sub-interpretations of the original idea of this Aryan race there are, right? Like we, mm-hmm. you mentioned before the Armanin movement, but then there's this other kind of splinter of that, which is the Artemenin movement, which focuses more on the land and the soil and this idea of blood and soil. So this is, you know, splintered out among many subgroups that share this basic foundation, um, and then they all kind of come rushing back together when the NSDAP kind of absorbs all of those other groups. So all of these slightly different ideas kind of get mashed up together. Mm-hmm. So as for Hitler, we know, we discussed before, that he closely read Ernst Schertel's Magic and seems to have used its suggestions for becoming a quote-unquote magician to manipulate crowds into taking in his message. 
And it worked. Fellow Nazi Party member Erhard Haydn wrote that no matter how ridiculous the content of his speeches were, Germans sat transfixed, almost as if he had them in a trance. Carl Jung said that Hitler's real power wasn't just politics, it was a kind of magic. Listeners later recalled, you know, when they're thinking uh, back on their first experiences of listening to Hitler, recalled that they were sort of supernaturally drawn to him and to his message. Primed on decades of Volkish mythology, audiences were ready to hear what Hitler told them. We also know that he was invested in the concept of a mythological Aryan race. In Mein Kampf, he wrote that, quote, the Aryan gave up the purity of his blood and therefore lost his sojourn in paradise, which he had made for himself. He became submerged in the racial mixture and gradually lost his cultural capacity until at last, not only mentally, but also physically, he began to resemble the subject aborigines more than his own ancestors. Blood mixtures and the resultant drop in the racial level is the sole cause of the dying out of the old cultures. So, This quote, at first glance, might just seem simply eugenic or just straightforwardly racist. And like, like it is, right? But Curlander makes the point that this belief system that Hitler is is describing here in Mein Kampf is drawn from those deep roots of pseudo-history and invented mythology and occult ideas, all of those things that we've been discussing all along. And so while Hitler doesn't discuss those occult theories in detail in Mein Kampf, and he doesn't necessarily go through every one of these societies we've talked about, you can see all of the traces sort of coming together into his ideology that he later sort of speaks from the NSDAP platform. And Kurlander argues that 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 isn't evidence that Hitler rejected the occult, but more so that he was dedicated to creating, quote, a broader and more inclusive supernatural imaginary, one that extended far beyond the academic, volkish esotericism of the day. He wanted uh, to create a broad, powerful and active political movement rather than, you know, discuss theories and try out, say, pendulum divination. Um, It was what would it, he called it? It was u- more utilitarian. Hmm. So this episode could go on for hours. We've <laughs> really actually only scratched the surface of, for instance, the werewolf uh, paramilitary organizations, of which there was actually more than one, uh, or the investigation of ley lines uh, by the Nazi party, the quest for miracle weapons at the end of World War I, um, the half-hearted crackdown on occult practitioners in 1941 after Rudolf Hess inexplicably flies to Scotland after talking to his astrologist, mm-hmm. um, th- the use of all of this wolkish mythology in Nazi propaganda, the literal cameo of the Holy Grail, the funding of parapsychological research headed up by Himmler's personal clairvoyant, um, Himmler's obsession with the history of German witch hunts. I couldn't fit any of that into this episode. (laughs) So I guess we have more episodes to come on these topics. That is, if you want them. So Mm. if you're interested in those topics, I volunteer myself as tribute. I'm already 
in this uh, topic pretty deeply at this point. So I am happy to keep providing in future October series to come. More about Hitler and his monsters. Yes. So I found it really striking throughout how much had to do with sort of an audience distressed by the state of the world, primed Mm -hmm. to hear a message, and then being fed that message by a charismatic leader, you know, talking in conspiracy theories. It was it was a little disturbing. (laughs) A little too on the nose. Yeah, it was a little on the nose. Yeah. But this Halloween, we're not focusing on what was last year's Halloween. We have a new Halloween to look forward to this yes. October. That's right. So let's, I mean, we have it's plenty. A brand of new day. Our own ghosts and monsters to grapple with right now Indeed. without having to think about how American history. I mean, actually, I was thinking as you were saying these things, and I don't know why. Is Harry Potter just Nazis? You know, that's really interesting because I feel like with every subsequent watch that I do of the the series, the film series, every time I reread the series, which I've done several times, and even when we went to go see The Cursed Child, I feel like I more and more am like shocked by how much I feel like that's kind of what it's meditating on. And then if that's the case... Is Voldemort's return supposed to be somehow like, you know, his like time in prison, like actual just Hitler in his Hitler lifetime? Or is it supposed to be warning us of this? A resurgence. A resurgence of of that evil and that violence and that racism. Right. That's what has always I have found so disturbing of in, in Harry Potter is the way that the Death Eater movement or whatever you want to call it um, is apparently vanquished, but it has never actually been vanquished. It's exactly. just driven underground. And then it's just the foundation is already there, right? Yeah. Voldemort can just kind of say the right words and it's it's speaking to something that's already ready, right? It's primed to hear that message. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, we went we went from the nazis to voldemort pretty easily there but pretty easily hey, and listen, that's it's, a gift for you it, all listeners. it is it's halloween go watch some scary movies um apparently i have to now watch uh hellboy oh which i've never yeah. seen um there's a lot of this a lot of this in pop culture so um, like I said before, if you're interested in hearing more, let let us know because I will happily keep doing these episodes for future occult um, series because I think it really is an actually a really important story of how these kind of new we, we think of this as being completely separate from po- politics, um, but it's not. It's it's actually deeply connected to how people see the world around them. Um, and it, it gave me a lot of things to think about for, um, our research on, um, on spiritualism and Lilydale and how that fits into sort of larger worldviews and political worldviews. So I think it's something that we certainly should still be thinking about today. So, but we have to wrap it up cause you gotta do. go teach. So I thanks gotta. for listening. 
be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at dig underscore history. Um, if you are looking to get some like, you know, witchy gear for, yeah. the, for the Halloween season, um, you can visit our dig store for some original designs. The swag is, is, is good there. Um, our teachers out there, we've got a whole section of our website that's dedicated to ed- educator resources. So um, whether you need ideas for how to use ep- podcasts in the classroom, how to start podcasts of your own, have your students do podcasts, um, or how to use our episodes in assignments, um, we've got some suggestions there. So I encourage you to go check those out. You'll find the link to our swag store, the resources for our educator page, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for all of our episodes at digpodcast.org. So thanks. Happy Halloween. Yes. Go watch some scary movies. Woo. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Ariosophists. Ariosophists. Anthroposophy. Anthroposophy. Aerosophy. 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 Anthroposophy. <laughs> Anthroposophists. The NDSAP. No, the NSDAP. <laughs> That's not right. I hope this is making sense to you. I mean, in that it's making sense, but not making sense. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's fucking crazy, right? Yes. Aren't you glad I gave you this book? I am. It's great. It, yeah, I could only, this is like, this episode is based literally on like the first three chapters or four chapters. Cause I just couldn't, there's so much in it. I don't, I misgendered him. <laughs> pooch, 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 or coo, Gerhard. Oh no. <laughs> I have no idea. Chesney, I'm gonna say Chesney. We need to look back into the ideology okay. of the. I'm gonna interrupt you again. Sure. I'm just gonna take this right. out. Okay, in order to understand Nazi relationship, there you go. What? I took out contradictory in order to un- just say in order to understand. You you took out contradictory? Yeah. Okay, I don't know what you deleted. Did you so? Where it says in order to understand the seemingly contradictory na- Nazi relationship, I deleted. Oh, I did it on the wrong version. That's why. Hold on. Oh my god! Yeah, you haven't deleted anything. I'm losing my mind here. Okay. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.